Mr. Jeff Atkins, how are you, sir? Not too bad, Mr. Gordon. How about yourself? All well here, all good here. Uh, we are going to talk about rare earths today, and, and well, certain aspects of it today. I want, I want to talk about, um, I guess, I want to focus on market demands um, versus operational demands um, when you're trying to build out a you know critical minerals company. And this is, it applies. We're going to talk mostly about rare earths today in, in that space, but it may it could well apply to other things too. But look, we, let's let's get our let's get our um, descriptions uh, out of the way. Let's say definitions out of the way, I should say. So let's start with operational demands for a company. What What is that? What, what are those things? So basically operational demands, what I refer to there is how do you take a company from, and what do you need to do to take a company from say a feasibility study or an exploration company to an operational company? What are the demands which are placed on that organization to make that transition? And that's, you know, different projects have different demands on in terms of what you need to do. And it's fundamentally comes down to how do you make a project bankable? That's it in a nutshell. But get, get so, expand okay. on that if you don't mind. You, okay. If you don't. So, okay. So if you're looking at uh, something like a rare earth project, for example, to, um, to obtain bankability, basically what you need to do is you need to, you have a resource. You need to, to obtain bank finance or to obtain equity finance or anything like that. You need to finalise your financial model. You need to understand what your, how much money you're going to make, what your revenue structures are, what your operating costs are going to be. Now, to do that, first thing you need to do is you need to finalise what your price forecasts are. Now, one of the challenges for rare earths is that you don't have a transparent market. So how do you get a pricing model which a bank or some other financing institution will uh, will use to fund your project. So that's the first challenge. And a lot of that then, you know, typically what will happen is you'll go to industry experts, they'll go back to historical pricing and take a worst case scenario. The next thing you need to do is you need to finalise your production schedule. Now, for something like a simple project, like a gold project, for example, you have a very simple, well understood ramp up profile. One of the challenges for rare earths is that that ramp up profile from commencement of operations through to nameplate when you're actually making money, depending on what your process is and depending on how far you go, might take four years. So, and that's that time that you have to really fund through working capital. The next thing you have to do is you have to get a binding offtake agreement. Now that binding offtake agreement is going to be dependent on pricing. It's also going to be dependent on what your production schedule is, because you need to confirm that you're able to produce product. Now, one of the challenges you have in rare earths is that if you're an established user of rare earths and you have an established supply chain, on day one, you're not going to replace a significant proportion of your product with a new supplier. They first need to prove their ability to produce product. That product has to be qualified. And so that binding offtake will have a natural ramp up profile as well. So all of this comes through and will determine what your revenue um, model will look like. So then when you come to financing it and to obtain bankability, what you need to do is you need to, you're not only looking at your capital cost, 
you're not only looking at your operating cost, but you're actually trying to understand how much money do you need to fund that period of time between when you finish your construction, when you ramp up your production, and the customer actually accepts your product. Now, if you look at history, when that can take four, five, six years. Now, if you've spent $500 million or a billion dollars on a construction project, and then you're looking at a four, five, six year period before you're actually um, achieving nameplate, that's a pretty, pro pretty hard project to fund. And that's where why bankability becomes very challenging. And yeah, particularly when you look at a typical pro, you know, typical mining project, project finance, you're looking at a five-year payback. You see all of these NPVs, which have a three-year payback, four-year payback, things like that. One of the challenges for rare earths is if you're looking at following this traditional model, you might be looking at a 10-year payback. So that's what I mean by how do you go, what's your what are your operational demands? So how do you achieve that bankability? So how do you design a project which is going to bring forward your payability, bring forward your payback period, give certainty to financiers and reduce the risk so that you can actually get funds? And that's the fundamental challenge for it. It, it is really fundamental and it does apply to other commodities too because when companies say we have, we're raising the debt and the equity for the build, the capex, the build of our uh, processing facilities, it just doesn't stop there. I don't think that's the end of any fundraising required. There will be a ramp up period. There will be problems. There will be delays and that needs to be all financed and it's particularly expensive at that point. So that's a really, really, really important point you make. Yeah. And not only that, but the more complex your process, the longer that ramp up period will take, the more working capital funds you will need. So. You know, process engineers love things called McNulty curves and all of those sort of things, which determine how long, which basically give a, a way of forecasting how long it will take to actually ramp up and achieve nameplate. Now, if you look at something like a rare earth project, where you have, you know, say you're looking at producing a fully separated rare earth product, the first thing you do is you mine and crush it. Now, that will have a logical ramp up period, you know, you go through your pre-strip, you have to blend it, you have to get enough material on the deck to make sure you have a consistent feed. So that'll have a little, you know, maybe a six month period or four month period. From there, you go into a concentration process, maybe like flotation. Not that complex, but well understood, but some of the mineralogy around rare earths can be quite complex. And so your flotation process, once you start commissioning that, you might be looking at probably a nine month, say a nine month um, ramp up period. Now that of course comes after your mining. Then you go to cracking and leaching, which is a the hydrometal hydrometallurgical process. So it might be a sulfation bake, might be a calcination, might just be a straight a straight leach. Well, that's going to take probably more than likely eighteen months to two years to ramp up. But that comes after you achieve equilibrium for your concentration. Then you go to separation. Now, of course, what you feed into your separation plant needs to be at spec material. So your separation plant, which is more complex again, is going to take even longer to ramp up. 
So when you go into something like rare earths, where essentially you end up with four completely separate and independent operations, each one effectively starting when the other one has reached a point of equilibrium, you end up with this ramp up period, which can spread to three years, four years, five years, six years. And this is exactly the situation which, if you look at history and the, those companies which have actually set up and get in, got into operation, that's exactly the process which they've gone through. Now, that's something which has to be funded during that period, because if you're producing a fully separated rare earth product, you're spending, operate, you're, you know, you've got operational costs during mining, concentration, cracking, and ramp up of your um, separation but you're not necessarily getting any revenue. So how do you fund that? And it's certainly not just through a straight debt financing for a project. So, and if you run out of money or if you have a problem or if you misjudge something, and don't forget every process is different in rare earths. So you can't just go back to, oh, this is what we did last time. The chances of something going wrong are significantly increased. So, the chances of you needing additional funds during that period become increased as well. So all of that adds up to significantly more expense. I mean, my rule of thumb is, you know, if you've got a billion dollar project with rare earths, you need a billion and a half. That's just, you know, as a very, very, very simple model. Now, if you've got a $200 million market cap, and that's what you're looking at raising, those operational demands and actually getting that to that bankability level becomes a real challenge. So the question is, how do you adjust your construction plans and how do you adjust your operational plans to enable yourself to achieve, to achieve that? The challenge for companies though, is that what's actually um, rewarded by the market is that billion dollar project because you can demonstrate a nice $2 billion NPV. And that's what the market wants to see. So what you find is you have all of these companies who are, they're promoting these massive projects. These are, yeah, it's the best thing since sliced bread, but it's all based on an NPV. But when you actually then get into it and you say, well, how do we bring that into operation? You can't or it's not that you can't it's very challenging and yet those to design a project which will maximize your potential to get into operation if you look at a npv or those sort of studies the numbers don't come out looking so well and they don't they're not as attractive to the market and yet that's the one which will get you into operation and achieve profitability yeah, and, and I think people need to remember, look, NPV means different things at different stages, right? So people issuing out on the first economic study, an NPV is not the same as an, you know, the NPV number, even if they say the same numbers, when you're, you're you know, you're FID, you're ready FID, here's, here's my numbers, right? The banks and the funders will do that very, very differently in terms of risk profile in terms of cost capital, in terms of obviously certainty around pricing contracts, et cetera. So it, 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 we, and that's probably a subject for another day because I think people like to do peer analysis on NPVs. And when I say peer, they need to be actual peers, people at the same stage of development. Companies do like to, I think, early stage, 
rate themselves against significantly advanced companies and go, well, look, if they're worth this, we should be worth that. It doesn't work exactly. like that. And, and simple, simple ones as well from share price perspective is saying, you know, I, I, I like the you know, 200 million market cap. We've got a billion dollar NPV, fantastic $2 billion NPV. Um, we should be, you know, our share price should be a hell of a lot higher. But then when you look at it, you might say, well, you might, it might take you 10 to 12 years to get into operation, eight years, 10 years to actually commence construction. How are you going to fund your company for the next eight years, which isn't incorporated in it? So, okay, you might need another $20, $30 million a year. So those shareholders are going to be diluted to that 20 to $30 million a year for the next eight years. And that's not accounted for in that NPV or the share or the or the share value. Yeah, and, and and even if it's if whether it's two years or ten years or whatever, that obviously it's, it's but very 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 different sets of costs, but very different sets of risks. But during that that build phase, but but here's another small gap in that which we you know from bank former life as a banker, which we <laughs> rarely rarely took into account because I guess it ceased to become our our problem, although it should have been. Was that once once the um, plant is built and the people the company is ramping up to its nameplate capacity? There's a little bit of the end there. Well, you, you mentioned earlier you said, oh, you know, once the once the um, client has received its product, you know, if you whatever you're making, whatever concentrate you're making, when they have received it, life is good. It's not because here's something which happened, which we didn't factor in, which was the timed to actually receive you know physical cash into the bank account so forward claiming revenue because that you've got a contract or forward claiming revenue because you delivered it doesn't actually equate to cash in the bank and we we saw instances where quite regularly three months afterwards up to nine months after and you've got to finance that and that costs money even if people say, oh, it's probably going to be paid because they're a AAA client, or maybe they're not AAA, but they're, they're still good for it. Because, you know, things happen. Companies fall over. Your product's sitting in another continent and you haven't been paid yet. How do you get after it, or at least the value of it? So there's that little gap as well, which... which um, I'll add one more to recognize as well, particularly yeah. with something which is in products which have a what I call you know, a business to business or say a business to business negotiated contract. Um, unlike something going into a, um, you know, just you know, like gold or you know, something which goes, L you know, LME, those, those types of things is that you have a very specific specification, which you need to hit. So you need to prove and your product has to be qualified by your end user and not only by your end user, but by that customer's end user. So it actually has to go through a supply chain to be fully qualified. Now, realistically, you don't get paid until your product is fully qualified. And that also includes things like when you're talking about impurity levels at one PPM or two PPM or PPBs or things like that, the laboratories have to talk to each other. So you have to actually be confident that the laboratories are getting the same results because how those products are tested can lead to very different results. So not only do you have to go through your ramp up, not only do you have to go through and produce your product at specification, that product before you get paid and before you can actually ramp up has to go through that qualification stage. 
So you have to prove that you are capable of producing product at, at that level and that the customers will accept. And so that's a real challenge. So if you're just starting from scratch, you've got a big project, you spent your billion on, you know, everything's going well, you spent your billion on CapEx, you've gone through your working capital, you've finally produced product, your first delivery at specification going to your customer. It's the first, first product that they've ever received. You might be looking at six months, at a six month period, four to six month period there, where you're trusting that that will be accepted. So you're still producing product, but it then has to be qualified and that there's not going to be any problems or there's not going to be an impurity in that product which hasn't actually been thought of before, but actually stuffs up the entire downstream process. So the big question comes down to how do you get your customer to accept your product, give you money in the shortest possible time frame, so that you don't wear all of these costs? Because obviously, if you run out of money at that point in time, funding becomes far more difficult. Right. Difficult, expensive, or actually terminal for you. Um, yeah, you kind of leads on to another conversation. And we, we've seen this a few times where you have developers who haven't quite got the market valuation that they think they should, all of them, if you listen to all the CEOs, but genuinely uh, haven't reached the center size and scale that perhaps the banks will pay attention to, but they're, they're desperate to do deal because they want to get into cash very quickly. And what they what they do is they can't get the big, the big, customers involved because they're too small the big customers are going well you could go you could fall over go bust your cash constrained there's all sorts of problems we foresee no thank you we'll look somewhere else so these these rare earth companies find themselves you know wherever they're positioned they find themselves negotiating with kind of suboptimal um partners so those could be trading trading companies who are willing to take a, a bet on this because it could mean a lot to them. But then that's predicated on them being able to offload it at the other end with a margin or um, or, or, or similar, right? And that leads to a whole bunch of problems. We've seen this outside of obviously critical minerals, um, you know, where things kind of fall over because of that. And I think, but even more so, the, the kind of layer on top of that for critical minerals companies that I look for when they do things like this is, is who, who are they facing off against? Because it's fairly nascent sector in the West, right? Outside of China, we talk about the ex-China critical minerals capability. It, 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 it's, you know, de minimis. It's improving, it's great. But the kinds of people who are evaluating, I'm talking whether it be banks, whether it be trading houses, uh, whether it be other kind of Western partners who are, again, learning the, the ropes uh, as they go as well. It, those are lots of ways that these deals and transactions can fall over, either technically or because the supply chain isn't entirely linked. At, at this moment in time. And I think those are the things that concern me. So why well, I'm intrigued, you know, talking to people like you and, and, and you know, and you're, you know, you're a consultant doing the rounds and advancing around um, Asia at the moment, talking to lots of companies and Europe, um, you're, you're hearing firsthand with some of the challenges that these guys are facing, some of the challenges that they're trying to solve, but not quite, 
quite there yet. And when we talked in Barcelona, the big thing was how do I sort my supply partners out? That's what that's what I'm trying to resolve here. So lots of ways, lots of things you should be looking for us as we've both outlined there, but lots of ways these things fall over and there's perhaps a little bit of caution required, right? Yeah, and one thing I'll just say, there's there's nothing wrong with going through a trading house. For a lot of companies, it's actually a good, it's actually quite a good business model because you have a, um, it's a way to get your product into the market. And that's the number one thing. How do you get your product into the market and get a sale? What you need to recognize though, is you need to understand where that product is going to go and what the required specifications are and your capabilities to meet that specifications. Now, the other thing when you go through a trading house is your penalties become far, typically will become far more severe if you don't meet your specifications. If you're looking at an end-to-end -end customer or a business-to-business customer, say a negotiated contract, you might find that those penalties won't be as great because it might be related specific, directly to um, what the cost of production is down, downstream or what the cost of rectification works are. But if you go through a trading company, they will typically be a lot higher. So the volatility in pricing can become far greater. And once again, this comes back to a bankability perspective where you say, okay, for a bank, if a bank's going to have a look at pricing model, you'll say, okay, what's a, what's a reasonable price? Now, if you look at NDPR, I would suggest that banks at the moment, I've had a conversation with the bank about this for a little while, but looking at the way the volatility has gone in pricing, you might be looking at a bank taking a price of about $45 to $50 a kilo for NDPR as their baseline price. For example, now on top of that, for a debt financing, you then say, who's your customer? That's your baseline price. What happens if you don't hit spec? What's the possible penalties? So our baseline is actually going to be, instead of being $45, $50, our baseline is actually going to be $35 to $40. Now, based on that, you then need to make a 15% IRR and have a payback in, in terms of cover, covenants ratios, things like that. And that's looking at... What's, I haven't looked at NDPR prices for the last little while, but I think it's about $65 a kilo, I think was last I looked at it. So, you know, those sort of baseline prices aren't that far out of the current market. Now, how many rare earth companies can get funding on that? And that's your fundamental problem when it comes to bankability. Well, the IRR becomes less of an issue if you've got scale. Right, because people are looking at actual do dollars created. So, you know, it's a super, super big Except it comes down to how much money you have to invest. Well, it, 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 it does, and the, and the payback, and, and lots of things that we've, we've hit upon in this conversation, and I'm sure we'll hit upon it in, in future conversations. But if, if, you, if let's assume those, those balance, those ratios aren't completely out of whack, you know, sitting at a kind of low double digit, and I'm talking low teen, number you could just about stomach but if it was a sort of mid-tier company you're you're going to be wanting 20 percent plus certainly in private equity terms you would but um in in mining more broadly i'd be looking for 30 percent plus because stuff goes wrong mining's tough right and 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 to and to and to that point one of the other big variables in in mining is what's going on with commodity prices we see that in the markets all the time you just need to go look at the share price compared to uh, you know commodity prices and you'll, you'll you'll see that very direct correlation there for the for the great the good and the not so good um, let, let's just talk about just finish off on the definition side of thing which is um we talked about market demand so we've done operational demands 
market demands in its in its broadest context and maybe narrowing down gives the definition as you said basically a market demand is what is the market looking for to maximize your your current share price like that's basically it in a nutshell is how do you promote your stock and what do you need to do what work programs do you need to do and how do you position your project which will maximize your share price for for shareholders and that's basically it in a nutshell now that's typically going to be grade it's going to be scale and that's the that they're going to be the key drivers which you have depending on the stage of the project but when you look at rare earth projects they're all at that definition stage you know more than more than most so it's really about okay how big's your operation how big's your um, uh, resource? How much product are you going to produce? And that's what the market's demanding. And I and they want it to be very simple. You want a really you want a simple chart where you can say, we have um, X number of tons of NDPR. We've got we're going to produce X number of tons a year. Our comparison is with and for for rare earths it's going to be against Linus. And it's going to be we're going to be producing 50% of Linus's volume of NDPR or the equivalent of Linus's NDPR. Their market cap is seven billion, six billion. So that's our market, and that's the way that, and that's what the market demand is. It has to be something very simple, very easy to compare to other projects, and something which is easy to understand. And you know, it's your 20-second soundbite. Right. But, but again, one, one of the things you said at the beginning was it's, it's very difficult because it's quite an opaque market in terms of trying to understand pricing and what's actually driving it. Um, and who, you know, are there any con- controls um, in, in that space? Because again, for me as an ex-banker, one of our biggest problems was the volatility, the, the erratic behavior around pricing. It's very hard to plan raise money and get a sense of what your margin is going to look like if the, if the prices are bouncing around so violently. So um, does that look like it's going to settle down now? Um, or are we, you know, I would, I would hope that the market and particularly the analysts will become a bit more knowledgeable in the sector and will actually understand and, and price price in risk a little bit better in terms of their, um, uh, their forecasts and their target pricing. So actually understanding what the complexity is of taking a project to operations and actually price that in a lot better. The challenge that you've got is that, um, yeah, for the market, it's all about share price. And if you need to raise money, it's not through banks. It's through, it's through the market, it's through equity, it's through, through your brokers and through your funds. And that's about, okay, how do we get the share price up? You know, for your shareholders, it's great. What do we need to do to get this share price up over the next six to 12 months? And that's our, that's our, our, our view. Um, so that's the challenge is how do you align? And this is a real problem for, um, for mining companies is how do you align the operational objectives with your market object- objectives? Because when you actually look at what it takes to get a, a mining project into operation, 
quite often it's diametrically opposed to what the market's actually looking for to help promote the stock and to get your share price up. So what's your focus? And I don't have an answer to it. It's just something which I, from my perspective, I would like to see the, um, particularly the analysts who put out their broker reports actually recognize the challenges and basically being able to say, actually, yes, this project has got a great resource, but actually talk up a lot more around, okay, this is what they actually have to do to get to operations. We think the chances are going to be, you know, it's 10 years, 15 years. So we're putting that discount on. And the risk factor is there's a 20% chance it's, it's going to make it. You know, so there's, there's our target. It's never going to happen. Exactly. <laughs> it's not, it's it's not the way yeah. that the analysts, the brokers are incentivized. So it's never going to happen. It's all going to be, it's going to be Barbie land. You know, people are, it's going to be nothing but, but good um, in terms of how they, how they position the companies. And that, that's why it's like, sort of, infuriating i would kind of like some help and i have to do all the work myself um in terms of working out a true valuation for a company i think we can spot the promotional stories because of some of the things we've said here today you, you know the, it's, it's obvious what they should be doing um, but aren't um for those companies that are genuinely trying to give it a go i'm not quite sure how to value them probably because they're opaque market market on pricing because i don't entirely know what because the details of contracting um, when you're contracting with a private company mean that the public company is not obliged to publish anything and let you know the kind of nuances of that of that contract which is a fundamental to the certainty around um, its ability to make money um, and even when it is with another public company they're still very loose uh, around around some of the terminology because um, you know, binding contracts are, are great, but, but there's always get out of jail um, clauses in there um, around pricing as well. It's very, very rare that we kind of get any level of detail on that one. So in trying to work out true valuations for critical minerals companies and, and rare specifically, it's really hard, really hard. And that makes it kind of off-putting. It's kind of like, I think it's a negative thing for rarest companies because people are going well if i don't understand it i probably shouldn't be investing in it unless they're going for the promotional play in which case they'll put their money in anything and then be terribly angry when they lose it yeah and, and that's fundamentally the thing what what you know for me you know from an as an if you're talking if i'm talking to an investor for example it's like oh you know what about this company it's like well what do you want are you looking for a company which you hope in the next six to twelve months is going to go up three, four, five times in share price? Or are you looking for a company which you can pop the shares in the bottom drawer, come back in five years time and find that you've had a fantastic growth? Because those companies are completely different. And that's okay. You know, as I say, from an executive from an executive perspective, um, you know, the miners have got a really difficult challenge because you either you, know, you can't do both. So if you're open about it, yes, we're promoting the stock. We're trying to get the share price up, and it's to get enough uh, value, enough um, you know, return. But understand that going into it, and other companies, you it will be a much slower burn. But don't com don't compare a company going on an operational path 
down an operational path with one going down a promotional path. It's, it's, a, it's a different investment philosophy. It might be the same industry, but it's a completely different investment philosophy. Well, well I, 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 absolutely. Um, let's, let's just um, talk about China in, in, in all of this. We've seen, obviously, recently, um, I think, and they were on our show recently as well, Peak Resources um, effectively flip Appian out. Um, well, Appian, I, I think that one, the Appian actually sold, just chose to get out. And sold their shares. Sure, sure. I sh yeah, I should be more kind with my language. And uh, Shenghi uh, Chinese come in there. Now we've we've had lots of conversations um, about the you know supply supply you know supply partners, supply chains, and ex China and all of those things, which you know U.S. governments are demanding, um, European governments are encouraging, um, so that they take control of their own you know um, domestic. Markets um, and, and and supply chains and pricing controls etc. But this this deal for say you know say for for peak resources um, bucks that trend somewhat, which suggests they may be confident about being able to raise finances. Um, what does this say to other companies out there that perhaps all of the the implied threats or you know can be ignored or do. You, do, or do you say, like, I'm just going to take the Chinese pill and uh, let's see how it goes? Look, I think for me it was a case of, um, you know, you know Peak have had a look at their business model and they've had a look at their project and said, how, how do we, what are our operational demands? How do we get this into operation? They have, you know, one option is, you know, it's a fairly large project. The nature of their deposit is that it's going to be a large project. Um, just with the costs and where it's located and things like that. And that's a reality of it. Um, if they're going to go down the path of uh, producing a separated rare earth product, and that was their original plan, they had a plan to build a separated rare earth, rare earth plant in, uh, in the UK, whereabouts are you going to sell that product is the first question. You've got all of this volume, whereabouts are you going to sell that product? Um, and okay, so we'll do a carb mix carbonate, or whereabouts you're going to sell your separated product. So for them, it's I, th I think, and not having had this conversation with them, but my reading of the situation is purely and simply, as we were talking about before, what do you need as a company? What do you need to do to get into operations? And they've put together what their best operational pathway is, and that is they can produce a concentrate product. They've got a customer who's willing to pay what they consider a good price for it. They're obviously comfortable with the returns that they're going to get on that product, which will enable them to get financing and to get into operation. Now, to me, that's a very logical business process to go through. Is it? Would it be better for them to say, and for the rare earth market, for them to say, actually, no, we're just not going to sell to China, so we'll we'll sit and we'll do more studies and we'll take another 10 years to bring it, the project into operation. By taking this approach, they've said, in my view, okay, this is a way that we can fast track our project into operations and it keeps our optionality open to further process downstream. But once we do that, we're going to be in operations, we're going to be in positive cash flow, and it will then give us flexibility. It might mean that we can start with a smaller Crack and, leech and crack and leech facility, or we can start with a you know, 
it gives them flexibility there in terms of what they what they choose to do down the track as they spend that money um, out of cash flow. So, you know, reduces dilution for their customers, gets them into operations. And this is exactly what I mean by what the market possibly demands in terms of what will look good from a project perspective, perhaps competing with what the reality is of what the project needs to look like to achieve production. I think I might hope I explained that one all right. Yeah, no, no, I, I, I get it. I, I, I guess what sort of intrigues me about moves like um, that is the, the, you know, that China's kind of getting on with this stuff and, and, and it seems the West is, is still sort of chat, chatting around it and um, not perhaps say fum, fumbling its way forward. You've got, you know, so obviously that that that's obviously we're talking about rare earths in, in, in Tanzania. There, um, you've got Japan jumping into uh, Namibia. Um, you know, looking for rare rare earths there. You've, you know, you 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 kind of got, um, you know, the, the the East is getting on with it because they they understand the sort of urgency of this and put, putting their hands on stuff. And I just wonder. You know, it seems the companies further down the supply chain seem to be the ones, you know, getting the share of voice. So, big, big, bigger. Well, first of all, one bigger companies with bigger balance sheets are in a funding easy to kind of rate raise capital. The smaller juniors are struggling somewhat because it's much higher risk, much earlier. There's no guarantees, and quite frankly, it's probably statistically going to be an absolute waste waste of waste of money. But it means that they can't even try. Right, and I think that's that's the problem here. Where as for us investors, right? You know, you think well, oh, where there's not enough um, retail money coming into, there's not enough government money coming into. It's like, well, how do they even get get you know get, leave leave the dock as it were? Well, and I think this is where it comes down to the um, you know China's obviously got significant downstream processing capabilities, so they need the supply, and so therefore. They need that feedstock, and so taking it, the move like Shanghai buying out, buying into um, buying into Peak, it's a way of getting access to feedstock. Works works well for Peak, um, and that's basically what they need. The challenge for the West is you don't have those established supply chains. So if you are a large producer of rare earths, where are you going to be able to sell those volumes of products? Now it's happening but depends on the time frame and how you can actually um, deliver those projects in. So, you know, you're looking at those separation companies who are getting into, starting to get into separation. They're starting smaller. You've got Retech in Norway, Ucor in the US. You know, starting at a smaller scale, ramping up, understanding that you can't start at 10,000 tonne a year because you need the supply chains down the, down the pathway, down the pathway or further down, down the, um, yeah, down the supply chain. So, you know, it's a different model and it's a different, it's a different market. So, um, and that's one which the June, which rare earth companies need to be able to understand and navigate. Yeah. It's, I, I, yeah, it's kind of interesting times. And the, the geopolitics of this is not lost on, on, on any of us in terms of, you know, China's pretty previously stopped you know, export of, of, of rare earths and, and, and other commodities too. It's got the capability, but, you know, year on year, July was up 49% in terms of its exports. So it, it's kind of, maybe that was a, a you know, 
it's partially COVID response supply chain response type thing. But I guess in the back of most governments, yes, yeah, specifically, they're thinking we do not want to be beholden to you know ch- Chinese um, uh, grip hold over the over the space. We've got to get going, but they're moving at quite a slow pace and i think the, the juniors which kind of feed the market um are kind of being, I, I kind of feel not not being helped at all and you've kind of got the big players being the beneficiaries so monopolies will will be in place and and price pricing will be controlled and i think that's never a good thing for no whatever the, the big are. ones are going to be the magnet manufacturers when the magnet manufacturers really set up and expand outside of china that's when you'll see the rest come and there are signs that that's starting to happen because, and it's not just about a, it's not just a China thing. It's purely and simply, and this is, we've seen this with a number of different commodities, number of different products. It's when you look at end users, if you've got a, a product which is critical for the operation of that, um, or a, a mineral or something which is critical for the operation of that product, you can't rely on a single source of supply. We've seen it with computer chips. We've seen it with all sorts of things. And fundamentally, your OEMs are saying, we can't have all of our supply coming out of one jurisdiction for a variety of reasons, whether it be weather, whether it be COVID, whether it be, you know, and with what happened with COVID, whether it be geopolitics, but you can't afford to do that. So you have to establish these other supply chains. And that's a fact, just fundamental, um principle of business and so these supply chains will need to be set up it's just taking some time but it will get there and it is starting to move and you're seeing one of the things i'm seeing is definitely there is an acceleration and an understanding of that further downstream the further downstream requirements and those decisions actually being made not just by governments because i i personally don't believe governments should be funding private business but it's actually being made by the businesses and by the by the companies themselves to actually support these uh, these endeavours. We shall see. Have you any any, any uh, bright and cheerful thoughts you can leave us with when it comes to uh, rare earths at the moment? What should we be looking forward to? Oh, look, I think it's I think it's very interesting the um, with rare earths at the moment the shift towards ionic clays and the amount of interest in ionic clays and there's starting to be a much better understanding of what actually constitutes not just an ionic clay, but a good ionic clay. Um, so I think that's a really interesting one. We've, there's a few projects coming on online, which are, well, not coming online, but they're progressing, which um, make that industry an interesting one. Um, and I think that's one to really look out for. So, I mean, the obvious one there is Meteoric. I think that that looks like a really good, um, it's a really nice project. The, um, not just the grade, but just the processing and the way that that works and being a true ionic as well. Uh, whereas a lot of projects which uh, claim to be ionic clays are basically just really, really, really low grade projects in clay. Um, so, you know, I think that's an interesting space. And as there becomes a bit more uh, knowledge around that, I think that's that's the next that's the next one. Well, we look, we look forward to that. Um, 
As ever, Jeff, thank you very much for sharing your insights and knowledge on this space. And we will see you soon. Yeah, sounds good. Looking forward to it.